So in 2011, 64% of the respondents indicated that they prefer in-person distribution methods for life insurance, two out of three. By 2020, that's declined to 41%. So from two out of three to two out of five, uh, basically online is the big winner over this 10-year period. You can start off with someone at the branch, and then we're talking about you leaving and then picking it up on your way home on your mobile phone. And then when you get home, you can jump on your laptop to finish off whatever application you need to do on the online channel. I think it plays into a much larger strategic initiative around data analytics to determine where the greatest propensities to buy may be, where the greatest need may lie. Historically, we might not have thought of the 65 and over age group as a big market uh, for life insurance. It is now a much bigger market than it used to be because we have a lot more people in that age segment and they have a much longer lifespan. We are not going to be in this commission-based world for too much longer. Everything is going fee-based. So looking at insurance from the perspective of how much commission are you going to make off of it is exactly the wrong perspective. And if you're an advisor and you're not striving to be a trusted advisor, as defined by managing the majority of your client's assets, you're out of business in five years. Most of our business happens after hours. We have to drive insurance because it's strategically important to the financial planning, the estate needs of clients. You know, add in the layer of the middle market where you're gonna be dropping smaller tickets and all of a sudden now it costs you money to serve that market. That's why the segmentation is so important. If we're gonna be advice centric, if we're going to distinguish ourselves from our competition, we have to include the protection element in the conversations that we're having. We are now in the third decade of the 21st century. We're pretty far in. It's a new world. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Stathis Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series for the Financial Institutions Wealth Management Channel entitled Fixing Life Insurance Sales. Our focus in this series is on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives. This episode focuses specifically on achieving success in life insurance sales. Today's podcast will be a discussion with six executives who have each approached this challenge from different perspectives. The discussion covers topics such as the recent and significant changes in life insurance distribution and purchasing trends. Eliminating sales obstacles, client and distribution segmentation strategies, term laddering approaches, and effective mining of valuable life application data. Our hosts are Scott Stathis and Bob Mattel, and we would like to express our gratitude to Everyday Life for their support in making today's episode possible. And now I'll turn it over to our hosts. All right, hello. I am Scott Stathis, and I will be your moderator along with Bob Mattel. And we would like to thank our friends from Everyday Life for hosting this episode. So we are joined today by a panel of six industry executives who will each introduce themselves shortly. But first, I'd like to let our co-host, Bob Mattel, introduce himself. Bob? Yes, I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-producer of the Stathis Mattel podcast series. And let's get to it. Let's let the rest of the panel introduce themselves. And let's start with Jake and John from Everyday Life. Jake? 
Hi, it's Jake Smarkin. I'm CEO of Everyday Life. All right, John. I'm, I'm John Richter, Chief Distribution Officer of Everyday Life. All right, Mr. Scanlon. Hi, I'm Jim Scanlon, Assistant Vice President of Insurance Research for LL Global. All right, which is, uh, I guess a lot of people might know it as Limra, right? Mr. Campone, Jim Campone, who I will refer to as JC to delineate you from Jim Scanlon. So JC, go for it. Great. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Jim Campone, I'm the Executive Director for Program Development at QSO Financial, Sorrento Pacific, uh, broker-dealer to financial institutions. Great to be here today, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And Dan. My name is Dan Overby. I'm president of IFP, uh, Independent Financial Partners out of Tampa, Florida. I run the uh, institutional division. All right, Dan. Yay. Hey, Scott. This is Yesu. I am the vice president and program manager over at Partners Federal Credit Union. Which, by the way, is the credit union for Disney. All right. Well, thanks, all of you. And uh, thanks for agreeing to being with us on this podcast today. So, we're talking about life insurance and life insurance through the bank and credit union channel, right? So we all know that life insurance sales through banks and credit unions has been a challenge to, to say the least, right? So um, we're gonna explore that during this discussion, but let's start with the trending. Let's get a big picture overview of you know how things look from the industry overall. When I say the industry, I'm not just talking about the bank and credit union channel, I'm talking about the whole financial services industry. And uh, Jim Scanlon, you uh, have a great perspective being at Limra because you track all of this stuff, right? And one of the things that we that we know is that the middle market has been underserved. And you know, way back when the banks and credit unions were, were, were supposed to be the saving grace for the middle market because that's their clientele, and we should be able to do a good job providing protection through life insurance to the bank and credit union clients. But oops. Uh, we're not doing as well as we thought we could, right? But give us your perspective, again, from the big picture, uh, Jim, especially as it relates to, to the, the middle market, things like ownership. And, and you know, I know there's some declines in ownership, the reasons for that. So just, just give us your big picture thoughts on that. Sure. Thanks, Scott. Well, we look at uh, life insurance ownership trends in particular in the insurance barometer study, which is an annual study. Currently, 54% of U.S. adult consumers own some form of life insurance. So over half, whether it's individual life insurance or group life insurance or both. Um, ownership levels have declined recently. So in 2011, the ownership rate was 63% uh, versus you know the 54% today. So that's a significant uh, decline over the past 10 years. It's also interesting to look at it by type. So for group insurance, it's declined from 36% to 25%, pretty big drop. And then for individual life from 41% to 39. Now group life insurance is important and those people who have group life insurance that are available to them participate, but the entire US population is aging. So a smaller proportion of the overall population is part of the workforce. So that's part of the reason that you see the decline in group coverage. And you asked specifically about uh, the middle income market. So if we take a look at those households who are in the 50 to 99K income range, 
56% of people who live in those households have coverage. So that's a little above average, but about the same. 27% have group, again, uh, about the same. And 37% have individual. So that's just slightly below the average. So it is the middle market. There are a lot of households, and those tend to sort of like drive the overall averages. One thing I did want to add is 31% of those households in that income range say they don't have enough life insurance coverage. So that's an important element in the discussion. So there is recognition by a good percentage of consumers that they need more life insurance. So what's interesting to me is that, you know, that's the case out there, right? There is an ownership gap. There's probably a coverage gap, right? Um, so, so let me go back to where I started when I said that the bank channel was supposed to be uh, kind of a solution to the middle market and it just hasn't worked. We haven't been. So from a trending standpoint in the bank channel, it used to be the case just a few years back that between four and six percent of revenues coming out of the investment and insurance programs in our channel was generated by life insurance sales. And the hope was that was going to increase, but the opposite has happened. So we're now down to between two and three percent on average as we look at it every month. We had a little bit of a spike in September of 2020 because it was Life Insurance Awareness Month. But the reality when we dug into the data was that a lot of that spike was caused by a handful of really big cases. So there may have been some sandbagging going on for Life Insurance Awareness Month. I don't know. But the point is that the banks just have dropped the ball. They haven't done well. Uh, doesn't mean they can't. It, it just means that they haven't been able to figure out what the right distribution model is, which is one of the things we want to talk about today. So that leads to the next question. Why has it been so difficult for banks and credit unions to, to really do a good job selling life insurance to their, to their clientele? Bob, you've been on the life insurance side of this channel for a long time. So maybe you can kind of lead off this part of the discussion because because you've seen some of these difficulties. And then uh, JC, uh, I know you have some stuff that you want to add as well. Well, you know, I think part of the uh, the issue for a long time has been less of a focus on uh, protection products um, in, in bank programs. There's either no attention or less attention to life insurance as a product line, just as more focus has been placed on financial planning. But rather than focus on the 2 to 3%, there are a lot of examples out there of some organizations that have well exceeded 2 and 3%. Actually, earlier today, Scott, we were on the phone with a, a program manager of a large bank that's at 9%, three times the average of the industry. And, and there's a lot of other examples out there. There's one organization that's doing insurance reviews, for example. There's another that is um, eliminated the grid and is looking more at a, a goal program and not looking at a commission type program. Another one with a platform program that's, that's on steroids and is really producing a lot. Those banks that are deploying one of these strategies well exceed the 3%. And each one of them is doing something different. There's five, there's five good examples. We authored the article earlier this year, why do we suck at life insurance? And you know some of those examples were in there and Imagine if somebody put those five different strategies in one program, they could be at 25, 30%. And I think a lot of insurance companies are also trying to embrace technology because we always hear that it's very difficult to buy and sell insurance. 
Yeah, no, thanks, Bob. And, and, and JC, you ran a program at NBT Bank for 20 plus years. You seem to, to a significant degree, find some secret sauce there. And you guys were generating some really good revenues from life insurance. But, you know, now you're, you have an interesting perspective because you're at a broker dealer that's serving a bunch of banks and credit unions, right? So you, you see the struggle among a broad swath of our channel. So what, what are your perspectives on this issue of life insurance sales through, uh, through banks and credit unions? Yeah. So a couple of lenses to take a look at this with. I mean, we were fortunate in that we were able to allocate, I think, resources to achieving uh, the specific initiative of incorporating life insurance as part of our daily process. And it really took a comprehensive effort on the part of management, business partners, training, advisors, uh, and just a whole system of, I think, mechanisms to really try to incent the behaviors, heighten the awareness, and, and create the activities that we wanted to create. But I think it starts with a, with a really high-level commitment to the objective of making life insurance a priority and, and, and a commitment to serving the needs of our clients. And, and I think at the advisor level, it is a different mindset than when you're dealing primarily in the investment services world. And it takes a great deal of education and training, I think, to understand the clues and cues and to really drive a discovery conversation that leads you to the right solution. And two critical components, I think, in any program is really having the barriers removed and having those glide paths established in, in two very specific ways. You want to have solutions with case design and you want to have really good process for case management. And so in many cases, we're relying upon business partners to provide us with both the case design and the case management to help our advisors get through those processes very quickly. That's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? If, if there's barrier mm -hmm. to underwriting, if there's challenges or difficulty, then advisors will tend to walk away. And there's complexity in coming up with solutions. So, you know, to a point I think you made earlier, it's important when you're looking at this to be able to consider, you know, how are you tiering your services? Do you have the right business partners in place that can provide the right solutions to all of, all of your clients' needs, whether they have uh, term <clears throat> needs, whether they have more sophisticated long-term estate planning needs, or they have business planning needs? It's just critical to have partners involved that can provide you with the case design. And then again, once it's in motion, it's, it's incredibly important to have a process that provides the advisor the confidence that the case can be issued with the least amount of impact to the proposed insured. There are a lot of boxes we have to check to get there. And I think when you look at today's environment, where it starts again and where I started that conversation is, are we getting the support from executive management looking at this to be a core aspect of meeting the needs of our clients and members. And, and once it's core and it's being supported and it's and there's expectations, you know, if we're gonna be in a world where we're advice centric, and I think that's what we hang our hat on, being able to provide sound advice to our clients and members, you can't mm -hmm. ignore the fact that protection is one of the critical components of any financial plan. So we often see advisors go through their Money Guide Pro plan and they kind of throw away the last page, which is protection. And the reality is, right, that's one of the most important pages that they yeah. should be 
paying some attention to. So, you know, I think there has to be a real commitment to making it part of the DNA and the everyday process that advisors have and truly giving them the support that they need to be effective in that space. You mentioned tiered delivery, uh, which is another aspect of this, right? And we want to get there because it, I believe, has become the case that segmentation, not only of the market, but almost as importantly, segmentation of delivery systems and mapping them to appropriate client segments has become critical, right? And, and, and one of the things that I think we're learning slowly but surely, especially with life insurance, is that there is... Uh, perhaps a significant opportunity that is not being realized because we're relying on live advisors to sell life insurance, and they're not very good at that. So there's there's a digital solution in, in here too, right? That has to be layered into that tier delivery. And that's the direction that I'd like to uh, explore as we continue this discussion. So I know Bob has a question somewhat related to that regarding the, the paradigm shift driven by consumer preferences, but let me let any of the rest of you who uh, ha may have any follow-up thoughts related to the difficulties of selling life insurance through the bank channel. Uh, John, I think you had some thoughts. Yeah, I do. I agree totally with uh, where Jim was at. It, it's really important from a management standpoint to have a champion in the bank that is really pushing uh, life insurance on the management team. We've seen a great program leader leave, a champion leave the program, and the sales went right down. You've really got to have a very disciplined, clearly designed insurance program that fits the culture in which you're working with. The one other thing that uh, I thought was very important is the education and the awareness with employees as well as customers. Because I've gone into banks and they said, I don't, I didn't even know we had insurance here. This is in a branch. Yeah, no, I agree. Awareness is lacking. Uh, Dan, you have some, some thoughts to contribute? Yeah, I just don't want to piggyback on what John and uh, Jim said. I think I think Jim nailed it uh, from the perspective of, by and large, the larger programs. Uh, but I but I think we've got to look at the uh, the overall market. And I think in order to make uh, that end to end solution that involves perhaps dedicated agents, uh, case managers, um, and and uh, the like, I, I think you've got to be above ten million in, in program revenues. Uh, when you look at the masses that we're working with, community banks specifically, uh, community credit unions, uh, I think you're, you're, you're going to lean more heavily towards a digital solution. Uh, you're not going to be able to provide case management in-house. You're not going to be able to provide uh, much of the infrastructure needed to leverage uh, this opportunity. And, and I think that's where uh, a, a product like Everyday Life that Jake and John represent I feel like it, it really, uh, it, it's a meaningful uh, sort of end-to-end, -end, straight through processing type of solution that I think the market is calling for. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting solution that I think is very relevant for the, the point in time we're in as we uh, start recognizing some of the difficulties that we have in figuring out solutions for, you know, what is the, what is the path forward? And we'll explore that more deeply in a moment. A couple of the things that I have noted here that I've heard over the years as uh, reasons why banks aren't, these are 
in my mind, excuses, but I'll read them as reasons why banks aren't good at selling life insurance. One, selling insurance is not conducive to the culture of a bank or, or financial advisors, right? Well, uh, that's bogus. So change the culture because you're not doing your job if you're not protecting your client's assets, right? Uh, insurance is hard to sell and advisors don't make enough money from it. Well, I, there's a solution for that too, right? And we don't have to go into the overwhelming detail of what the solution is, but one of the solutions we're going to talk about today, you don't necessarily have to rely on advisors, right? Um, discussions around insurance are difficult for advisors to have with their clients due to the emotional ramifications. Man up. <laughs> Come on. Uh, you have to have those discussions. Advisors are intimidated by the insurance discovery and sales process. Well, you know, learn it. Right? I mean, you know, again, can't stress the importance of protecting your client's assets and the fact that you cannot call yourself a financial advisor if you're not doing that, right? Um, and closing a sale and getting paid takes too long. Well, I, I think we're getting more and more efficient in, in a lot of ways in, in that regard. But I just wanted to throw those out there are some of the things that we've seen as we work with some of these programs and, and talk to some of these advisors. So I'm going to, uh, Bob, I want to hand it over to you because I know you have a, a question that you would like to ask. Well, and yeah, I do. And it kind of wraps into a lot of the things that uh, that Jim and Dan were talking about. And this let's let's start maybe off with Jim Scanlon. And let's talk a little bit more about the tier delivery and this paradigm shift that we've seen in life sales driven by consumer preferences. Um, alternate distribution preferences. There's a lot of customers that want to sometimes take control of what they're buying in the market. Um, we've seen that in auto insurance. We're now starting to see it in life insurance. Um, we see it with Amazon. I mean, there's a lot, there's a whole big movement about, you know, customer preferences and delivering products the way the customer wants to receive them. Is there any research, Jim, that you can point us to? Uh, yeah, Bob, there is. Uh, again, I'll refer to our annual insurance barometer study. Um, we do examine a few dimensions of the market, and one of them is distribution preference. So in 2011, 64% of the respondents indicated that they prefer in-person distribution methods for life insurance, two out of three. By 2020, that's declined to 41%. So from two out of three in 2011 to two out of five, 10 years later. So that's a pretty big shift. And then, okay, so where did that, where do the preferences go, right? If they're leaving, moving from in-person, what are they moving towards? So uh, basically, online is the big winner over this 10-year period. So in 2011, it was 17% of the respondents said they would prefer online distribution for life insurance. And in 2020, that is up to 29%. Uh, so almost 3 in 10. So again, I think that that's, you know, that that's a, a, a really telling trend. Um, past 10 years, we've moved from over half of the people wanting in-person and now it's less than half the people prefer in person. So in summary, uh, that's the biggest trend over the past 10 years. And I would bet that uh, the next time numbers are done taking into account what's going on currently with the pandemic, that those numbers will continue <laughs> to go in that direction. Um, well, well, that's correct. And, and yeah. we've written some pieces on that. Uh, you know, there's some commentaries and market facts to that effect is that this may very well be a generation defining uh, year. And when I, when I say generation defining, what I mean is there are people going through a critical life stage. Now these life experiences imprint themselves on their psyche 
and that makes a lasting impression far beyond the time frame of the actual event. So the short-term trends that we're seeing now going from, you know, people used to like high touch, correct? And now we're moving towards low touch. Uh, and many of those trends may persist over the long term. John, John you had something? Well, yeah, as I was listening, all I was thinking about is the segment is really driving that big increase, which I would assume are the millennials. Their preference is, is really online. They're used to doing everything online. And they really are the kind of the uh, anchor for the future of many of the financial institutions out there. That's their customer of the future. Okay, Scott, I think you had something to tag on to. No, no? I, I didn't mean to stop you, John. I, oh, okay. I was just I, I was, was just, on a roll. Okay, yeah, <laughs> and you could keep on going. I was just letting Bob know that I had a thought to follow up on your thoughts. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. And then and then I'm going to have Yate chime in as well. Well, and that's where I was going because we're talking about millennials, and there's one on the call, right? Yeah, you know what? We think the same way. I was going to go. I was pointing that way, and I was hoping you were could... obviously mistaken, guys. <laughs> you, you are. You, you just. You're. You're really good at at looking young, but you're older than all of us. Is that what you're telling us, Yay? <laughs> uh, it's neither, actually. Well, you know, Zoom is beautiful. It beautifies you. It's like a Photoshop can for you. <laughs> you look wonderful, Yay. <laughs> well, here's the here. But here's my thought. I'm well, here's my question for you, right? Directly in line with what we're talking about, if the millennials are driving these changes in preferences, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about next is client segmentation. And I think there's a whole new paradigm for client segmentation when you consider that, you know, part of segmentation has to do with which segments are more likely to, to want to interact digitally, right? But so yeah, here you are running the program for Disney, right? The credit union for Disney, um, which employs a ton of millennials, Right. So are you seeing trending towards a desire to do more and more via, you know, digital interface and online as opposed to coming into the branches or so? So yeah, what, what trending are you seeing from your perspective in that regard? Well, I think, Scott, everything you said is exactly I mean, is almost word for word what the, the credit is pushing online and mobile. These are the top priority focuses. I mean, they're talking about omni-channel. They're talking about the seamless transition. For someone like you, Scott, you could be a member. For example, you come in to do a loan. You can start off with someone at the branch. And then we're talking about you leaving and then picking it up on your way home on your mobile phone. And then when you get home, you can jump on your laptop to finish off whatever application you need to do on the online channel. And then everything is seamlessly done with all the help of technology behind it. And that's where the, the ton of investment is being made in my credit union. I mean, that seems like a trend for every other credit union to speak to. Absolutely. The trends in client segmentation and how online distribution of life insurance, it just fits in so well into a lot of what we're talking about here. And the efficiencies that we, we garner from that, um, to Dan's point, there's a certain number that, you know, of, of the size of a bank that really makes sense to do different distribution models based on the market segmentation. Mm -hmm. I, I'm interested to see uh, maybe, uh, JC, do you have any trends on segmentation on how um, some of your credit unions and banks are taking a segmented look at insurance distribution? You know, Bob, I think it plays into a, a much larger strategic initiative around data analytics. We're all, you know, we're all moving to collecting data and then analyzing it to determine where the greatest propensities to buy may be, where the greatest need may lie. 
And it's interesting. And, and I actually would probably lob this over to Jim for a little bit of his input. You know, I'm curious what your observations are with regard to some of those demographics, right? Where do you see the greatest level of activity for consumers for particular products? So, you know, Bob, to your point, I think we're still collecting that data and, and we can correlate you know, the types of insurance coverages that people are purchasing or in many cases, right, should be purchasing or should be thinking about for their life stages. But we probably haven't done a great job of collecting that data, right, uh, as, as, as financial institutions. But I think, you know, as we look at trending, you know, we want to try to identify what are those age bands that make the most sense. If you look at today's snapshot, and I'll, I'll use one quick example, uh, with the Secures Act, right? It's doing away with the stretch IRA. And that's now created some real opportunity for people that have large IRA balances that are probably over the age of 65, right? Or 70. And they're looking at issues around inheritance. And all of a sudden, right, a small change in, in, in tax law has created an opportunity. And a lot of times I think life insurance provides solutions to many complicated issues. So there's a way where you could just very simply say, all right, I can look at the balances of all my clients that are over the age of 65 that, you know, have a balance of $250,000 or more in an IRA. And is there an opportunity to help them reposition that to a more tax efficient transfer for their beneficiaries? So I think that's one example, but we have to do a better job of collecting the data today. But, but Jim, again, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, you study these analytics all the time, what some of the trends are on the data that uh, you're looking at and, and where you can identify opportunities. Uh, yeah, thanks, JC. So, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities in the marketplace. There's opportunity even among people who own life insurance who don't own enough coverage. And that coverage amount, what you need, that, that gap, that really does depend on the demographics, the life stages. And as it happens, uh, Limerin's doing some research on that very topic, buying reasons for life insurance among buyers and non-buyers segmented by life stage. But one comment I would like to make uh, based on your question is over a period of time, what I have observed is that the market for life insurance just keeps getting broader, bigger. So the population is growing. Uh, people are living longer and longer. And so whereas historically, we might not have thought of the 65 and over age group as a big market uh, for life insurance, it is now a much bigger market than it used to be because we have a lot more people in that age segment and they have a much longer lifespan to look forward into and have a lot more reasons to have and maintain life insurance coverage. So those traditional markets for life insurance, young married couples, those with children, that like one of the biggest differentiators is whether you're married or not, in terms of that's a huge driver of life insurance ownership, whether you have a child or not, another huge driver. Those life events, those sort of household characteristics, they're still the strongest predictors, but there are a lot of other factors and age is not as much of a limiting factor as I think it had been historically. Jim, Jim, thanks very much. I'm going to move to Jake. He's been nodding um, as, as you were talking. And then I know uh, Ye has some ideas as well. But uh, Jake. I think another important consideration is how some of these trends are getting exacerbated by the pandemic and the state of play today. Uh, you know, it's kind of a tale of two markets for carriers. The ones who were already prepared for a digital future are having the, uh, you know, all-time years. 
And the ones that were completely reliant on traditional distribution are kind of taking it on the chin. And that's playing out through the whole system. So, I, you know, if you think about um, Jim's trends that he was uh, identifying from the LIMRA insurance barometer study and the preferences moving toward online, uh, the pandemic in many ways is just accelerating that transition. And it's already being felt in a way that we need to accept not as a temporary blip, but really as a, a permanent change. And the other piece of that in addition to um, the addressable overall addressable market getting bigger, I think a lot of the, the research from, from LIMRA, as well as just the experience that we're seeing in the market, is that younger folks have a much higher propensity to buy and just interest in the category um, than they ever have. The events of today can really kind of set the mindset for an entire generation. A lot of these activities that we're seeing this year are not just uh, a one-time thing, but are really direction changers that forward-looking institutions should really be planning around. I think we're going to see a lot uh, trending in that in that way. Absolutely, uh, virtual, alternate, digital uh, opportunities are really starting to uh, to build. Yay! Yeah. Uh, before I talk about why we suck, and I kind of I'm kind of going backwards. I know, but I like to see myself as one of the contributors on what the problem is. And it's so easy to talk about a problem because, hey, I'm not offering up any solutions. I'm trying to become part of it. But you know, Scott, I've been to your roundtables many, many, many times, and this one phrase really is stuck in my head. I always see you in my mind standing up front saying, "Folks, we are in an inflection point." Same thing can be said about insurance sales. I mean, you guys touched on the the switch, and this is not temporary. I know it's COVID-induced, but it will stay and uh, improved upon and then built upon going forward. You know, you've all provided great perspectives from the research standpoint, and we've got distributors on the panel, and then we also have BD perspective. I mean, these are all great panelists. And I like to see myself as somebody on the ground every day, if you will, right? I talk to other program managers across the country, and I see my folks, and and and, and I manage the day-to-day of an investment program, a typical investment program. I mean, the challenge is there. Everything that's been mentioned so far, I see it all the time. They are really all true. I'll say again, you know, I'm guilty as charged. I mean, I, mean, I see myself as part of the problem. I mean, trying to do my best and become a part of the solution in terms of, hey, I'm a frontline person, right? I'm out there dealing with people on the ground. A few things I want to add. Management standpoint, lack of leadership support or buy-in. If management doesn't want to do it, forget about it. I mean, you can push as hard as you want, but hey, yay, that's not the direction we want to go down. We have other priorities to focus on. It's just not our focus right now. And from a, an investment program structure point of view, the lack of support, there is a lack of support. And then, you know, there's the DDC channel, right? The direct-to-consumer channel, which I myself am working on right now as we speak. I mean, Scott mentioned distribution model challenges. I think we're all talking about the same thing here. JC touched on training as one of the obstacles, and I think I completely agree with him. Training not only in terms of product training, but also sales training. They don't buy into the whole holistic financial planning approach. You know, the focus is traditionally being on investment management. And if you ask my guys, they're always telling you then the product of what they do. And they're also going to tell you, hey, we're CFP professionals. Okay, give me a full-blown financial plan that includes insurance. And nine out of 10 times, the answer is, well, you know, and then you start seeing excuses and hearing other things. 
And from the, the advisor's perspective, product knowledge or, or lack thereof, I mean, I'll just put it this way. You can't really sell what you don't know, right? They don't know enough products out there. And if you ask them about products, they're all stuck <clears> in this whole, oh, insurance sales means selling term. That's all they know. And they're stuck in their mindset forever. Last but not least, I'll say this. And frankly, money's not there. You know, if you stack money against all the time and efforts involved, two folds. One, the comp plan. I mean, that's something management has to look at. Is the comp plan set up in a way to incentivize insurance sales, right? And then the other side of that equation will be, hey, you know what? The reps, do they believe the commissions that they generate from the insurance sales are worth their time and effort? I'll tell you, most people I talk to, the answer is no. No, it's not worth my effort. It's too little, puny little income. I'd rather focus on something else that is quote unquote more important. I just don't want to be bothered with it. So, you know, let me just summarize everything into the single phrase. They don't believe in it. Let me react to a couple of things there. Um, because, you, you know, you, you refer to Disney as magical, right? Well, I'll tell you something else that's magical. And, and I know this, right? It is what happens when you as an advisor provide for the protection need of your clients. I don't care how much money you make off of that single transaction. If that's what you, the way you're looking at it, you're missing the forest through the trees. Oh, and by the way, let's not forget and let's not kid ourselves. We are not going to be in this commission-based world for too much longer. Everything is going fee-based. So looking at insurance from the perspective of how much commission are you going to make off of it is exactly the wrong perspective. You need to be looking at it from the perspective of what will it do for my relationship with this client and how will it affect the trust that the client has in me? My message is what that does to the overall relationship with the advisor and the institution. And listen, we are in a race to gather assets, make no mistake about it. And if you're an advisor and you're not striving to be a trusted advisor, as defined by managing the majority of your client's assets, you're out of business in five years. Okay. The only way you're going to be able to do that is truly understanding their needs and then servicing those needs. And those advisors that start servicing among all the other needs, the protection need will have much more loyal clients that'll stick with them. And whatever other advisors that client has are going to fall by the wayside. So if you don't do it, I don't care how much money you make off of that single transaction. What I do care about is how profitable is that client to you overall when you put that in the mix that's a difference maker right there. So if you want to talk about magic, then let's look at the big picture, not just the amount of money made from that transaction. Hey, I just want to, I wanted to build on a point that Ye was just making about the comp, you know, add in the layer of, of the middle market where you're going to be dropping smaller tickets and all of a sudden now it costs you money to serve that market. And that's why the segmentation and having a different approach for different segments is so important now is the perfect time, really, because consumer preferences are, are moving online and the, the cost to serve is so much lower online. Um, you know, the other ingredient to consider is the product design. You know, a lot of the complexity is brought on by um, complicated products. But, you know, most in the middle market, mo their needs are very basic and straightforward products straightforward underwriting, a, an elegant, intuitive user experience. These are, these are the building blocks. You, you're not a pioneer at this point if, you're, if you can deliver that. It's a proven model. The comp problem that you brought up is really important when you think about how to profitably and responsibly serve the middle market. 
Jake, segmentation is a really important component of this discussion. So I, before we move on, and I know Bob is going to take it into another direction here in a second, but before we move on, um, let me describe what I think is the segmentation model for the 2020s that, that, that you really have to pay attention to in order to thrive and maybe in order to survive, right? Because the old segmentation model is, is not as applicable anymore. So let's talk about the old segmentation model first. The old segmentation model is one dimensional and it's horizontal, right? So if you think of a spectrum on the left side of the spectrum, you have low net worth on the, on the right side of the spectrum, you have ultra high net worth, and then you have all the segments in between, right? That's what we've been working on with that segmentation model, but that has changed. It's gone from a one dimensional model to a two dimensional model. So if you think about now a vertical access that has uh, self-service on the bottom and high touch on the top, right? The, uh, clearly the self-service implies a lot of digital, right? And then you have high touch on the top and then in between you have a hybrid. So now you have a left to right and a top to bottom. And if you can picture that plus sign in your mind, you have quadrants, right? And in those quadrants are different type of clients that want to be served in different types of ways, but that two-dimensional model dictates, and I think that's exactly where we are. It dictates digital solutions. And in some parts of that segmentation model, it's all digital. In other parts, it's hybrid. And in other parts, it's all high touch. But you cannot do without the digital model at this point. And, and I can make it a case, if you were to block out a segment of those quadrants uh, for different product sets and how to map them to digital solutions, hybrid solutions, et cetera, that insurance could really take the biggest block of that, especially as it relates to digital and hybrid solutions. And, and I believe, Jake, you tell me if I'm wrong, it's one of the reasons why you're the founder of Everyday Life, because you have that same conviction and you want to provide for a digital solution that can fit in with that segmentation model. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. Uh, I could, couldn't have said it better. And that's the way to profitably serve that market. But it's worth remembering that's how they want to be served, you know. Right. And more than half of our business comes um, after any bank is closed. Most of our business happens after hours. If your model is dependent on face to face or even call center sales, um, and, and you're not open at 10 o'clock or midnight or two in the morning, I can tell you from our experience, you're missing a huge chunk of sales. You know, there's just so many reasons why that, that segmentation framework that um, you just articulated really resonates with me and, and makes so much sense. Yep. And so, you know, let's, let's explore a little bit more. And I think, Bob, your next question is, is somewhat related to that. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to start off with Dan and ask, you know, we've been talking about so many different things regarding insurance distribution and what makes a successful program. There's segmentation, distribution planning, marketing, compensation, testing, learning, digital. What do you think would be the top three or four components that makes for a successful program? We'll start with Dan and go around a little bit. I think, Bob, you know, back to the augmentation that I made to Jim Campone's statement about program size. I, I think you've got to look at the, uh, at the size of the program. And then I think what you've got to be able to do are develop deliverables that are commensurate either in terms of compensation or in terms of technology or in terms of the strategic fit. I think, you know, going back historically, I've been a part of a program where we had dedicated agents, uh, we had dedicated case managers, and, and we really made a, a tremendous leap forward. 
But but we saw that even somewhat displaced by a financial planning emphasis. So we went away from you know a heavy laden salary dedicated insurance agent to more of a holistic approach with financial planning. We maintained significant success, and we got up to the six percent of our overall revenues uh, by driving it based upon compensation. Uh, Our advisors, in order to qualify for President's Club, they had to do a meager 2% of total production in insurance premium. And so, you know, when they went away with that, or when we went away from that, we saw it fall back to the levels that you guys uh, knew earlier. But I I think, again, Bob, specifically, I think it's it's a matter of, of coming up with the deliverables in a larger program, I think you have the resources. In a smaller program, I think it has to become more of a strategic priority. We have to drive insurance, not because of the money it's going to put in, in the advisor's pocket or the licensed banker's pocket, uh, but because it's strategically important, it's strategically significant uh, to the financial planning, the estate needs of, of clients. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, Really, is it a financial plan if it doesn't include a protection product, or is it an investment plan? Jim, I know you agree with that. JC, rather. Yeah, I think Dan is spot on. Smaller financial institutions may not have all the resources to have that aggressive of a strategy to be able to commit you know, to the case design and case development. And it kind of comes back, I think, to two things we've talked about here. It's one, having a good partner right? Because there's a lot of good partners that are out there that'll provide those types of support to the programs. And then to to Scott's point, really making sure that we have the right solutions in every sleeve of a client's need and being able to deliver those solutions effectively. So I think those two things are, are just critical, right? And, and to tie in what Ye said, right? You've got to have that engagement at the advisor level and at the program level to make all those things happen. But I think that, I think the the resources are out there. And, and again, if we're going to be advice centric, if we're going to distinguish ourselves from our competition, we have to include the protection element in the conversations that we're having. Absolutely. John, I think you had something to add to that. Yeah, uh, we're seeing the uh, response significantly stronger from the mid to smaller size bank with digital marketing because our sales, because they don't have the resources and they, they can't staff it up. But what's really interesting is we're right now have verbal commitments from two of the top 20 banks. And one of them does not have online life sales. While you think of a, a big bank as having a machine that is blowing uh, life sales out, they are not in the digital side, and uh, they're, they're seeing this as a first step into getting into this market. One other thing I wanted to add, in banking or credit unions, if you aren't offering protection, there is going to be a silent run that you're not even going to be aware of. They're just getting bombarded by so many companies offering them protection products. So if you don't have a protection product, not only are you going to lose that service, but you you could lose asset and insurance business is sticky. Jake, I know you feel the same way. And I know um, you have some thoughts about increasing awareness and in the whole marketing aspect and really getting you know banks and credit unions engaged with the technology. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think 
The first thing to, to consider is almost a societal point, which is that the rate of change is increasing. You know, today is the the slowest rate of change we'll, we'll, any of us will see for the rest of our, our lifetimes. And the, just the pace of change in our society is constantly accelerating. And we're at a point now, you, you really need to embrace an, a, an agile mindset and build your program and your just a whole approach um, with that in mind. In other words, you know, a humongous investment in building out some giant architecture and taking a year before you even get to get to implement it is going to put you uh, in a tough spot to succeed. Where we see the most success are with teams who their bias is toward action. It's a test and learn mindset. Let's get in there. Let's try out something uh, quickly and easily and see what we learn from that. Double down on what's working and, and cut what isn't. That really requires a, a different kind of a mindset away from the traditional waterfall mentality toward developing products and programs. Um, and it also involves embracing that partnership approach, embracing more of a, to borrow a term from the asset management world, an open architecture uh, mindset. It's just a different, it's like a bit of a culture shift, but I think the world <laughs> circumstances demanded at this point, And I don't see that ever going back. Yeah, Jake, it's funny. Um, you say agile mindset. And the first thing that jumps to my mind is, well, that's certainly not a bank. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, but here's the saving grace. They are learning that they have to outsource the agile mindset, right? So, so while it's not inherent to the culture of, of, of a bank by a long shot, there's an acknowledgement that they need to be that. And what we're seeing in some of the smarter banks and credit unions is that they're outsourcing stuff. I mean, right. JC, you you see this going on from the third party broker dealer standpoint, right? They're outsourcing stuff to organizations that can be agile, right? So they don't have to deal with their internal bureaucracy. They can just turn to you to get stuff done, right? <laughs> so that's it's, so it's really interesting to think about it from that perspective. And that leads us right into the next subject that I'd like to talk about. So, you know, Bob and I, as we've worked in this industry for a real long time, and John, I know you're, I can speak for, for you and actually, you know, Dan and Jim mm -hmm. as well. We are very familiar with a BGA outsourcing solution, right? And they've worked really well in, in instances because the BGA can at times make up for some of those things that I mentioned before are the excuses given for, for not being good at life insurance, right? However, the BGA model is somewhat stifled by the new segmentation map that I talked about that's two-dimensional and quadrants, right? So that's giving rise to what I think I can safely call you guys at Everyday Life, which is a digital BGA, right? It's a new type of, of BGA that, that may actually prove to fit precisely into this puzzle that we're talking about of, of solutions and, and how to solve for that. So uh, Jake, if you will, just describe, if assuming you agree with that statement, digital BGA, <laughs> describe for us, how would you define a digital BGA? And is that indeed how you consider your company? Yeah, well, John and I are both laughing because I think it's a great term, but you know, we, we res resist pitch and holding because you know, we, we saw a specific consumer problem that we sought to fix and uh, really take a consumer first mindset. 
uh, it just turns out that now looking back, you could call it a digital BGA, what we built. But to unpack it a little bit, the first thing is it's consumer facing. So it's about serving consumers directly. It's not, you know, sometimes when you hear BGA, you think about, you know, more like enabling agents, uh, which is which is great. But, you know, our model is really about helping consumers in the way that they want to be helped. Um, and then the, the other aspect is worth unpacking is it's really not just about processing transactions. There's that old saying about life insurance is sold, it's not bought. And, you know, I think that there's a level of general awareness that might, might go counter to that at this point. I think a lot of consumers are very interested in life insurance, particularly now, but what they need is help uh, because on their own, when they just look at the market, they're stymied by some combination of just the cost the complexity or lack of support, and they don't know who to who to trust. So we go way beyond just the idea of processing transactions and really see our primary value add is by bringing a, a needs-based selling approach online. And the solutions that we design, every, you know, it's very customized coverage for individual consumers, but it's presented in a way that is intuitive and obvious requires a lot less selling because it just makes sense and it's designed to fit within people's budgets. So, you know, you think about it, someone said to me earlier today, they, they made the observation that we are now in the third decade of the 21st century, uh, which is, it's, it's I, when they said that, it kind of struck me. We're pretty far in, guys, I guess is what we're, we're trying to say. And so it's a new world. You know, most of the people that interact, that access the internet, do it through their phone. Something like 81% of all U.S. households are Amazon Prime members. And it's just incredible where, where we are. Um, you know, this is the future, right? We're here. So if you want to be relevant to the customers of tomorrow or even the customers of today, you need to meet them where they are. And, and that's, that's where they are and, and really be thinking about things from their perspective. Everything we've done has been in service of that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I love uh, some of your <laughs> bullet points there. I, I didn't know that stat about Amazon Prime. I'm one of them. Yeah. <laughs> you probably all are, right? And wow, the third decade of the 21st century. I'm getting friggin' old. <laughs> <laughs> so providing these digital solutions is, is the front end, but there's a carrier equation on the back end too, right? They have to play ball with this. Is, yeah. is that something that is worth talking about? And are they providing you with leverage or give us that dimension of the solution? Well, the way I talk about it, to go back to Amazon, I talk about it with carriers as the, the Amazon tax. And what I mean by that is we've all been so conditioned to expect online buying experiences in the way that Amazon has trained us <laughs> to shop. And if you cannot be that convenient or intuitive or useful, then you pay a tax in lost conversion and lost sales. Think about the typical consumer today is seeing over 8,000 marketing messages every single day, which is like something like 10 times the level of when Prince was playing 1999. So uh, we are all so burdened with so much information flying at us all of the time that we place a huge premium on simplicity and ease of doing business. The harder you make a consumer think about anything, you'll pay for that and lost conversion. 
I think actually one of the silver linings for the pandemic is that it has finally woken up carriers to really invest heavily in in this. And uh, from their perspective, it, it comes down to underwriting. There's always been this talk and, and some action toward fluidless underwriting, you know, toward using big data, right? And to accelerate the underwriting process. But it was really the events of this year that I think have caused a lot of companies to um, invest more in that and to recognize that that really is their future because the ones that were already ahead of the game are having good years and the ones that aren't are looking at their expenses and trying to figure out a path forward. So the carriers that we really focus on, when we think about who we partner with, it's commitment to innovation and a commitment to reducing that Amazon tax I mentioned. It's a, it's a commitment to our market, commitment to their balance sheet, being super strong financially, investing in customer service. It's the basics there. Those are the things that we look at when we evaluate carriers. You you mentioned underwriting, right? And straight yeah. through processing. And, uh, it's, it's one of the things that industry, I think, has struggled with. And I say I think has struggled with is because while some carriers say they've gotten there, other carriers maybe you're saying it, but haven't, but there hasn't been this kind of, you know, from a holistic standpoint, acknowledgement that, yeah, we're there with straight through processing with, with life insurance. Right. But as you work with the carriers, are we getting any closer? And Jim, I, let me know if Limer has done some research in this, in this regard as well, but you know, Jake and John, let me know what you've experienced and, and, and Jim, if you have any insights with the progress or lack thereof of straight through processing on the life side, I, de I definitely see a lot of progress there, and it's aided by technological innovation. I, I see more and more cases going straight through instant decision. You know, carriers generally doing a better job of triaging and figuring out the most appropriate path for a consumer. You know, when you talk to carrier executives, they, they talk about it as a matter of when and not if they will get to fluidless underwriting for the majority of their cases. And that's very, very important, particularly in the middle market where people are as pressed for time as they are for money. And when you have to do a lot of follow-ups to a middle market consumer, you're gonna lose them because they don't have the time. Carriers are, who are committed to closing the coverage gap, recognize that that's a that that's a behavioral hurdle that they have to overcome, and and uh, and you see it actually playing out. At the same time, during the pandemic itself, some carriers have kind of tightened up, kind of hunkered down, <laughs> and getting a little more stringent in their underwriting. But in the long run, uh, I think it, the trend is very clear. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a real lifelong insurance geek. Um, and I've been following some trends in life insurance distribution strategies. And there's a term that we used to use years ago when I was on the bank side called, you know, we used the ladder CDs, but I'm hearing that more in life insurance sales. What is that all about? Well, uh, this is, this is really the backbone of, of everyday life, um, is this term laddering strategy. And the idea is very simple. I'm going to make, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to just use a geometry metaphor, um, <laughs> don't but, get complicated now. I don't know <laughs> geometry. <laughs> no, we're talking about rectangles and triangles. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. So if you think, just visualize in your mind, I, I would say a, a classic term life product, I would describe it as a, uh, as a rectangle, because what happens is if you were to chart it out over the period of time, the coverage just stays the same. Right. And so if you draw it out, it looks like a, a rectangle on a graph. But 
if you actually look closely, most people's needs for family protection look much more like a triangle than a rectangle because basically, you know, one way to think about it is their kids are going to grow up and hopefully become self-sufficient and you won't need as much coverage. Um, but another way to look at it is just, you know, if, if you think of term life as for basic income protection, the, the overall, you know, present value of your career declines over time as you approach retirement. And so that kind of looks more like a triangle. And so term laddering is the way to um, organize your coverage to better match your needs so that as, as that triangle is working down, the coverage steps down and the cost steps down along with it. That's very important and valuable um, for consumers, especially budget conscious consumers, because even on day one, it could lower the cost 25% or more. And, and, you know, for a typical customer of ours, they're going to save 100, 200 bucks in the first year, which is a uh, date night, you know, um, and over the course of the whole policy, they're going to save $5,000, $10,000 with the triangle instead of the rectangle. And, you know, now we're talking about uh, some trips to Disneyland, right? Um <laughs> And uh, maybe maybe dropping by Ye's office. So the savings are real and they're they're meaningful. And you know the 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 kicker is it might sound complicated. Yes, the math's complicated. That's why we have technology. When we present these solutions on our website to our consumers, they get it. They get it very quickly, and and they appreciate the thoughtful customization. So the, the assumption that consumers, that it's a heavy lift at, from an educational perspective is not valid. And we, we found the reality to be that consumers really appreciate a needs-based approach like that. Well, I, I don't think any of our listeners ever expected to hear magical and geometry <laughs> in an insurance conversation. <laughs> so I hope all our listeners out there are taking notes because those two words have never been said in an insurance conversation ever. It took us eight to, to figure that out. Hey, With Bob. That, let me, yes. Bob, don't forget rectangles and triangles. I, okay? I, you know what? I just went with <laughs> geometry right. because that's, that's very important. Nailed it. And when you think about the savings using that strategy, it's just that is really that's what it's all about. It's really embracing really acknowledging to really figure out how we can improve, you know, the whole buying experience and save money as well. So with that. Right. I'm tossing to Scott. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'm going to pivot a little bit, but I want to get reaction from maybe, you know, Jim Yeh and Dan, and then pivot back to, to, to Jake and John in this regard. And, and I want to pivot to data mining because in my mind, data mining is one of the most critical strategies for us moving forward. And so on a very simplistic level, the, the reason I say that if you're, looking at it from a bank or credit union perspective is that, uh, you know, we're chasing, we're chasing traffic out of the branches, right? We used to put advisors in branches to get in the way of branch traffic, but we're chasing traffic out of the branches. So what are the new traffic patterns that we have to get in the way of? Well, it's very clear. The new traffic patterns are digital, right? So the big question in our industry is how do you get in the way of those digital traffic patterns, right? The answer is data mining. But how do you do it elegantly and effectively and, and, and in a way that's going to yield the opportunities for our organizations to act on? So it dawns on me when you are going through 
an insurance application process, you're collecting a ton of data that's really valuable to the organization overall. Probably the only other application process that's collecting as, as much relevant data is, you know, when you apply for a mortgage or something, <laughs> right? Wow. So possibly more even because the, right. the mortgage exactly. banker doesn't call your doctor right yeah right right so so jake t- talk to us about the potential of data mining it, with the insurance application process yeah well it's enormous uh by the nature of the data that's collected one of the ways that that we use that to create value for our financial institution partners is actually enabled by the needs-based approach that our technology delivers because we do it holistically. You know, when we're developing an insurance recommendation, it's in the context of their entire financial picture. And our technology makes it easy then not only for the user to provide the information we need, you know, which we then supplement with third-party data to come up with a holistic view, but also that allows us to identify other needs that they have and feed that back to the financial institution to serve those needs. And now you're approaching them with a, a relevant pain point that they're very likely to already be aware of. It's certainly the lifting is made a lot easier since it's fact-based on their situation. That's one way that we found that we can quickly use the data that we're collecting to create value for the consumer and for our partner. It's incredibly rich, right? That data is incredibly rich. And I, I would think that there are, there are huge opportunities. And you know, one of the things that I hope we get good at um, are flagging the appropriate things in the data to get those opportunities in front of advisors, but also realizing that if you implement a digital insurance solution, for example, the benefits of that are not just the insurance policies that you sell, but it's that that add-on stuff, right? That you can do with all the data that you're collecting. That's a big deal if you're using it right, I would think, right? So, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, um, uh, Bob, I think it's time to bring it on home with the last question. Absolutely. And this question is for uh, for Jake. And, and it, we've talked about why it's tough to sell insurance. We've talked about segmentation, data mining, underserved markets, uh, protection-focused financial planning. We've even talked about magic and geometry. <laughs> How does all this relate to what I'll call the race to easy, the race to fast and easy insurance? Yeah. Well, I'll just start by saying that everything I, I've been saying in this podcast about the state of the consumer, uh, you know, distracted, overwhelmed, pressed for time, that applies to all the, the, the employees at a, at a bank or credit union or broker dealer. They're, they're people too, right? And so, you know, we believe that it's really important for any uh, partner uh, to be effective, that they really design the partnership offering to be one that takes a burden off of the uh, bank employees in terms of the implementation, for example. Uh, it can't be a giant technology project just to get to market. It, it can't be uh, something that requires massive training sessions. So we, we try to really take care and I think it's essential for any partnership to be successful to really consider the spot that, that people are in and design a program to be uh, very, very easy to implement. John, some thoughts? Yeah, just a couple. In, in thinking about what everybody has said here, 
when JC started out, he mentioned providing a specific solution for the institution you're going after. And with our digital program, it's three simple steps. It's simply going into the site, doing a two-minute walkthrough, getting a recommended plan, which is where a lot of people break down, like Jake mentioned earlier, because they have so many insurance products to choose from. We give them a triangle that <laughs> offers you know, them what they need right now, what they need when their kids move out, when they retire. And then it, it, it literally has three options at the end. It, they can save it if they want to come back to it. They can decide they want to move some numbers around or they can buy it. And the plan is done. What, one last thought on that I wanted to offer is it's not either or, right? It's, it's yes and, exactly. you know, it, this exactly. isn't about, you know, replacing your current program. It's about expanding your solution set. And these, these aren't competing ideas. This is not cannibalizing sales. This is growing the pie. Yeah, I think that's a uh, key statement right there, because what we are talking about in the last half of this discussion with the digital solution and term laddering uh, is additive, right? It's just because there's just not enough of that going on right now. Uh, it's not an excuse to not do the higher end insurance cases that right. need right. that personal touch, right? Absolutely. Um, matter of fact, it may be a gateway drug into that. Right. Because, right. Because there are certainly clients that may go through the purchase process of a term laddering solution via your digital portal that because of data mining, if done right, gets flagged to a professional advisor that says, yeah, this person just bought. But if you look at their holistic situation, they also happen to be a business owner that also happens to X, Y and Z. You need yeah. to talk to them about some other insurance solutions and you're off and running, right? Yeah. So it's completely additive. It doesn't replace anything that's going on. And it, and it fills out, going back to that, that two-dimensional segmentation model we talked about, it fills that out very nicely in a way that requires no heavy lifting to implement. And there's found money with the revenue share model, as far right. as I can tell, right? right? From what I understand. So uh, yeah, uh, it makes perfect sense to me. All right. So uh, I think we are at the end of the discussion. All right. Well, listen, um, thank all of you for your contributions. Uh, I thought this was a very engaging discussion. I think it's going to be very helpful to our to our listeners. So it's much appreciated. We enjoyed having you as guests. And I'm guessing that, Bob, you have a few closing thoughts. Um, again, thank you very much to our panelists for their time and preparation. Dan Overby, Jim Scanlon, Yay Sue, Jim Campone, our sponsors, Jake Tamarkin and John Richter from Everyday Life. Thank you so much. You know, we have, we hope we've brought our listeners some compelling research and some new ideas on how to really crack the code with life insurance and um, doing it with some magic and some geometry as well. So um, <laughs> thanks so much. And uh, that's a wrap. All right. Bye, everybody. Until next episode. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. Also, don't forget to check out our two other podcast series, Untangling FinTech 
and BISA Industry Trend Watch. Finally, we'd like to thank the executives who joined us today and also express a sincere appreciation to Jake and John of Everyday Life for their support of this podcast. Jake and John have been a pleasure to work with. Thank you. Please subscribe to our podcast and join us again for future episodes. 